Monday and welcome to Not Boring. Today, we're going to be talking about Web3, NFTs, the metaverse. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you read Not Boring last week, you know all about Masterworks.io. Masterworks.io lets anybody invest in blue chip art. Why is that important? Over the past 25 years, contemporary art has outperformed the S&P 500, and it's done so with lower volatility and with a low correlation to equities. That means a more diversified portfolio. 2020 was a pretty good year for tech investors, but chances are that the market won't just only go up for the next two, three, five, ten years. Adding art to your portfolio is one way to diversify and potentially protect your 2020 gains. And with the Fed injecting more money into the economy, smart investors are moving some of their wealth into hard money assets like art to hedge against inflation. Masterworks.io is the only platform that lets you invest in paintings by artists like Basquiat, Banksy, and Monet at a fraction of the cost. You can sign up today at masterworks.io and use the code NOTBORING to skip the 25,000-person waitlist. Again, that's masterworks.io, promo code NOTBORING. See important information at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Now let's get to it. The value chain of the open metaverse. Beeple's Millions. Between December 11th and December 13th, an artist named Mike Winkleman, who goes by Beeple, sold his works directly to collectors via online auction house Nifty Gateway. The welcome bidders received upon entering the site was the first sign that this wasn't going to be something like Sotheby's or Christie's would put on. Ha 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 Okay, so we're going balls deep on this motherfucker. Then there was the structure. Three works were priced at $969 each and left open for five minutes. Anyone who wanted to purchase one or more could. One work priced at $1 each and only 100 were made available. They sold out within seconds, and 21 works were sold one at a time, normal auction rules, highest bidder wins. At the end, the artist auctioned off the complete MF collection, including all 25 works sold prior. Finally, and most notably, there was the art itself. Beeple's Everyday's collection was comprised of digital art backed by non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, used to prove the validity, ownership, and scarcity of digital items or experiences. Oh, and over the course of those three days, people earned $3.5 million, where Web3 meets the metaverse. People's auction is one of many wisps that have started to come together recently that have piqued my interest in Web3, NFTs, DeFi, and whether and how they'll interact with the metaverse. I've been excited for the potential of the metaverse for a while. But when people like Epic Games CEO Tim Sweeney and writer-investor Matthew Ball talked about the shared standards and protocols needed to make it possible, none of it clicked. Now, I think that Web3, a decentralized evolution of the internet, might hold the key, and that NFTs are a bridge between Web3 and the virtual economy of the metaverse. I know some of this sounds out there. I'm more bullish on the metaverse and the blockchain conceptually than most non-crypto startup people. Relative to the more financy folks here, my views are downright techno-utopian. And yet, whenever I heard that the metaverse would become a multi-trillion dollar economy, or that Web3 is the new internet, Bitcoin will hit 100k, DeFi will obsolete fintech, and decentralization is our best bet in the battle against big, scary corporations, I didn't quite get it. The vocabulary around Web3, like that of many early movements, is very idealistic. It's all about using technology to create trustless systems, wrest power from corporations, and give it back to the people. 
I think that vocabulary is why I haven't taken it seriously as a real alternative to the status quo. But I have gone deep down the rabbit hole, and I think I get it now. I can see how decentralized web might make the leap from passionate early adopters to the mainstream, that there are real economic advantages to the decentralized internet, and that Web3 architectures will play a crucial role in a more robust metaverse. What has been missing for me is a clear use, like the NFTs, and an understanding of the business models and value chains underlying a lot of these concepts. Yes, there's idealism, but there's also a sense of building a new economy in which the value accrues to the people who create the value. That's capitalism, baby. Today, I'm going to do my best to unpack it. Web3 and the metaverse are two separate ideas that may or may not intersect. I think the future is much more exciting if they do. To understand why, we'll start by understanding Web3, we'll dive deep into NFTs, and then we'll move on to the metaverse, and then look at what could happen if these ideas converge. So we'll go over what is Web3 and why is it important, non-fungible tokens and digital ownership, NFTs in the wild, the size of the metaverse prize, the open versus closed metaverse, crucible in the direct avatar economy, and the value chain of the open metaverse. You're going to be hearing a lot more about Web3, including DeFi, NFTs, and the metaverse, and if you dismiss it, you could be left behind. So join me down the rabbit hole. It's going to get weird. Ready, reader one? What is Web3 and why is it important? I'm going to make a gross generalization about you based only on the knowledge that you're listening to Not Boring. You've heard the terms Metaverse, Web3, and NFT, but you wouldn't bet money on your ability to define them, and you don't know how or where they intersect. That's what we're here for. To start to unpack it, we need to define Web3. It's the foundational concept here. Web3 is a return to the vision of the early internet with built-in superpowers. Decrypt, a media platform covering the decentralized web, kicks off its Web3 explainer with this description. Quote, the next major iteration of the internet, which promises to wrest control from the centralized corporations that today dominate the web. While that explanation might build fervor among early adopters and builders, it doesn't do Web3 any favors with a wider audience. It says what Web3 is against, not what it's for. The best way to describe the positive attributes of Web3 is to take a quick, quick trip through internet history with Tony Shang and Chris Dixon as our guides. The early internet in the 1980s through the early 2000s, Web 1.0, was decentralized. It was built on top of a series of open protocols that anyone could build directly on top of, like HTTP for websites, SMTP for email, SMS for messaging, IRC for chat, and FTP for file transfer. The benefit was that these protocols were generally agreed upon and not subject to change. I could build a website on HTTP, and if people had my website address, they could go directly to my site and not intermediated by anyone else. As Dixon said, this meant that people or organizations could grow their internet presence knowing the rules of the game wouldn't change later on. It was a direct relationship between creator and consumer. There were some major challenges, though. It was stateless. Web 1.0 protocols were stateless, meaning they didn't capture state or user data. Capturing user data has negative connotations today, but stateless protocols meant that websites' owners didn't know whether I'd visited a site before and couldn't tailor experiences accordingly. It was too technical. You needed to be technical to build a presence on Web 1.0, which meant that regular people were left out. It had missing protocols. Web 1.0 didn't have standard protocols for many of the things that power the internet today. Payments, search, apps, social media, commerce, credit, and more. And the protocols didn't make money. Imagine developing HTTP, seeing trillions of dollars worth of value being built on top of it, and not being able to participate in the upside, aside from some speaking fees, consulting gigs, and book sales. Oof. 
Web 2.0 from the mid-2000s to present emerged as entrepreneurs recognized the holes in Web 1.0 and built products to fill them in and capture value in the process. These companies didn't just capture state, they aggregated it, building up huge troves of valuable user data. They made it so that anyone could participate and build a presence. Think of how easy it is to set up a Facebook page versus coding a website. They wrapped existing protocols in frictionless user interfaces and created de facto products where no protocols existed. Sheng describes the transition. He said, state aggregators became the dominant players of the internet, and one surprising result of Internet 2.0 is that many of the original open protocols have been replaced by state aggregators. Internet 2.0 also showed us the power of networks. In the absence of open protocols, state aggregators acted as protocols for new areas. So there's, you know, instead of SMS, there's Facebook Messenger. Instead of HTTP, there's Chrome. Instead of SMTP, there's Gmail. FTP is Dropbox. IRC is Slack. And Web 2.0 is fucking awesome. I'm writing this newsletter to you because of Web 2.0. The probability of me figuring out how to write all of you directly on top of SMTP is exactly 0.00%. And many of you found not boring through state aggregators like Twitter. But there are challenges too. Twitter, for example, could decide to shut down my account whenever it wants to, and I can't take any of my followers with me. It did so to the president of the United States, and my take was that there was no good solution. But in a, in a less tragic example, Facebook famously allowed brands and publishers to build up audiences on a seemingly free platform and then changed the rules, forcing them to pay to reach their own people. Dixon describes the transition as an S-curve. In the beginning, centralized platforms do anything they can to attract users, developers, and businesses in order to build up multi-sided network effects. Once they've built up those network effects, though, and they know that users, developers, and businesses are locked in, they switch from attract to extract. The easiest way to grow revenue is to start charging businesses and developers to reach customers and to serve customers' ads or product based on the data they've accumulated. To be clear, I don't think there's anything inherently evil in this. I could leave Twitter if I felt that I was getting screwed, and indeed, many people deleted Facebook after the Cambridge Analytica scandal and after many incidents since then. It's a market. The way the internet is currently architected allows for companies to capture value, and they do. Web3, then, isn't as much an idealistic repudiation of Web 2.0, although that's a good marketing tool, as much as it is a natural evolution of the market made possible by new technology. Web3 is the next version of the internet built on top of crypto-economic networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum. According to Dixon, quote, crypto networks combine the best features of the first two internet eras, community-governed decentralized networks with capabilities that will eventually exceed those of the most advanced centralized services. At the heart of Web3 is the idea of consensus protocols and standards with money baked in. I think about it like a series of open-source APIs that anyone can use to build according to an agreed-upon set of rules that gain financial value over time, which is shared with everyone who contributes to the API. Instead of building siloed products, Web3 is built for interoperability. This is a key concept. Keep it in mind. Decentralized finance, or DeFi, which as the name implies is attempting to build a new financial system without central financial institutions, is one of the most promising layers being being built on top of Web3. A common analogy for the way that DeFi products are built is with money Legos. In a 2019 post, Building with Money Legos, DeFi company Total wrote, there are roughly 200 projects listed on DeFi Prime alone, each with their own unique features and infrastructure. That means that if you picked any three of the roughly 200 listed tools, you'd have 1,313,400 different combinations to choose from to build a new financial product. That mirrors one of the benefits of APIs that I wrote about, namely, 
I said, quote, there's also a competitive advantage to be gained from how you leverage APIs to build your company and product. Using a bunch of APIs that are really flexible and figuring out a good way to connect them leads to a combinatorial explosion of potential workflows. API-first companies turn software into customizable building blocks. There's a reason for the similarity. Web 3.2 uses APIs for software to talk to each other. The main differences between Web 2.0 and Web 3 are levels 0 through 2 in the stacks, like the foundations of the technology. On top of that, though, there are things like APIs and browsers that uh, are built on top of these Web3 networks that feel, ideally, although not yet potentially, very similar to the the way that you're used to dealing with a website. The implications of the architecture uh, have implications on where value accrues within the system. While some people love the privacy that Web3 offers, or the fact that, quote, the man will no longer own your data, that gets it backwards, in my opinion. It's not about who doesn't own your data, but who does, you. That's what crypto folks call self-sovereign identity. Despite the large sums of money made by people who own Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other altcoins, I've always always viewed Web3 as an anti-capitalist movement. That couldn't be further from the truth. The movement is really about doing one of the most capitalist things there is, cutting out the middleman. It means that instead of value accruing to the aggregators, there can be a more direct connection between suppliers and consumers. It's not about taking money out of the system, It's about moving the money around to the people who create and the people who consume, and to the people who maintain and improve the network itself. And it's about attaching each user's data and money directly to them, self-sovereign identity, creating a public record that they own what they own, the blockchain, and letting them take it with them and profit from them, profit from it wherever they go on the web, or interoperability. Part of the magic is that money is built directly into Web3 protocols. Bitcoin and Ethereum, the two main protocols on which Web3 is built, both have mechanisms for rewarding contributors baked directly into the code. If the same were true for Web 1.0, Tim Berners-Lee would be worth a hell of a lot more than $10 million. New, directly exchangeable internet money unlocks entirely new business models. That's what excites me most about Web3, the new business models it enables and the new value chains that emerge when the middleman is removed. New projects are being built on top of open protocols that hope to transform finance, DeFi, commerce, e-commerce, and each of the things that we currently do on Web 2.0, all plan to replace the middleman with algorithms and let users own their data. By supercharging the protocols themselves, they enable peer-to-peer internet in line with the original vision of the web. The world is starting to take notice, or at least Twitter is. According to audience intelligence platform Pulsar, DeFi was mentioned on social media 8.8 million times in the past year, which is up 571% year over year. And in August, past mentions of blockchain for the first time. That's a good sign. When the use cases start getting more buzz than the underlying technology, it means that reality is starting to catch up to the potential. Still, while all of this makes sense on paper, the interfaces are often still clunky and unapproachable to the non-technical. That's why Coinbase, a centralized exchange, is still the most valuable crypto company. Cryptocurrencies are fun and valuable, and I'm incredibly excited about DeFi's potential, but I hadn't seen a convincing killer app used by regular people until I discovered the resurgence of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and digital ownership. As origin stories for new economies go, NFTs take the cake. Three years before Beeple's everyday auction, in November 2017, a small Canadian venture studio called Axiom Zen set the blockchain on fire when they released a series of digital trading cards with pictures of cats on them. CryptoKitties were a relative flash in the pan that will have an enormous long-standing impact. Besides being arguably cute, 
allowing for breeding, which is combining two CryptoKitties to create new ones, and spawning over $30 million worth of secondary market transactions, their legacy is as the first digital asset to use the ERC-721 asset standards for NFTs. Let me back up. Non-fungible tokens are cryptographic tokens that prove authenticity, ownership, and scarcity of digital assets. That's a massive unlock for the digital economy. As more of our lives move online, the ability to own scarce digital items is only becoming more important, and the NFT-based digital asset market will increasingly mirror the luxury market. An authentic Birkin bag is able to fetch prices hundreds of times higher than the exact same bag in knockoff form because owning the real thing says something about the person who owns it. The same is true for digital items, fashion-related and otherwise. One of the beautiful things about the internet is that you can produce something once and distribute it infinite times. No more printing physical books or CDs. Users can just download their ebook or Kindle or to Kindle or stream the song via Spotify. Each copy of the book or song is fungible. I don't care which digital version of Old Town Road I download. I just want to hear the song. The same is true for money, which was created for its fungibility. Instead of worrying about how many shells to trade for how many bags of rice to get how many pounds of meat, people could just sell their shells for money and then use that money to buy meat. $1 is $1 is $1. Although technically Bitcoin hashes are traceable and therefore unique, the value use case of Bitcoin is fungible. I don't care which Bitcoin I get. They're all the same. So too with tokens on the Ethereum blockchain that represent digital currencies. I don't care which ETH, BAT, UNI, or SUSHI I have, just that I have the right amount. Those tokens are all built based on the same standard, ERC-20, that defines a bunch of important information like the total supply, how to transfer tokens, and how transactions are approved. ERC-20 tokens can represent almost anything worth tracking with an Ethereum smart contract. Money, reputation points on a Web3 social media platform, skills of a character in a video game, an ounce of gold. In November, Sari Azut and I wrote about Fairment, which let companies give equity to their stakeholders via continuous agreement for future equity, or CAFE. Cafes are ERC-20 compatible digital securities. When everything I just listed has in common is that they're all fungible. I don't care which share I own in the company or which reputation point I have. But if Web3 and digital worlds are going to replicate the physical world and some of the best parts of Web2.0, they need a way to prove ownership of unique and scarce digital assets. Currently, for example, I can buy a skin or outfit on Fortnite, and maybe it's the only version of that skin that Epic sells. That's non-fungible, but it's mediated by Epic. They could decide that they're going to make more of the same skin, which incidentally they've done, that they're discontinuing that skin, and certainly that you can't take that skin with you to other virtual worlds like World of Warcraft. Any digital asset faces the same challenges. If it's easily copy copyable, I have no way of proving that I have the real thing without an intermediary, and if it's mediated by a third party, it's subject to change. NFT solved that problem by leveraging the blockchain to prove ownership and authenticity of rare digital items. Built on the ERC-721 standard, NFTs treat each item they represent as scarce, unique, and authentic. An NFT serves as a digital certificate of authenticity, backed by math on a public ledger that incontrovertibly, incontrovertibly proves that the holder owns a one-of-a-kind digital and sometimes physical asset. NFTs have exploded in popularity since October. According to Pulsar, NFT was mentioned nearly 2 million times on social media in the past year, up 840% year-over-year, faster even than DeFi. The surge was likely propelled by the rise in the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum, which turned thousands of crypto enthusiasts into millionaires. But it was also driven by Beeple. In late October, Beeple auctioned off an NFT that would change based on who won the U.S. presidential election. 
If Biden won, the winner would own an NFT depicting people walking by a big, fat version of a passed out and dong Trump on whom a Twitter bird lands in terms of clown face. If Trump won, the NFT would transform into a muscular Trump walking through flames. Anyone can view these digital works. All three states, just the pre-election, the Biden win, and the Trump win, are viewable in a Twitter thread. But just like a real work of art, the value is in owning the verifiably real thing, not a print. As a result, the winning bidder, the Museum of Crypto Art, paid $66,666.60. Then in December, NFT interest spiked again when people auctioned off his everyday collection for $3.5 million. All told, the value of NFTs increased massively at the end of 2020, when OpenSea released its non-fungible token Bible in January 2020, average monthly NFT volume was 2 to $3 million. By December, ADAPT tracked $10.15 million worth of sales over the previous 30 days. It's still a small market, but it's growing fast, and the technology has huge implications. Three projects showcase the growing role and potential of NFTs, NBA Top Shot, Whale, and Digitalix. NFTs in the wild. There's a new wave of products and projects being built that leverage NFTs. When we wrote about Fairmint, for example, we highlighted Foundation, which builds itself as culture's stock exchange and allows people to buy and trade NFTs. Today, I want to highlight three more, because each represent a step forward on different fronts for NFTs. NBA Top Shot, Whale, and Digitalix. NBA Top Shot. After the overwhelming, literally, success of CryptoKitties, the Axiom Zen team set up a company called Dapper Labs, raised $12 million from investors including Samsung, A16Z, USV, and a roster of NBA players, launched a blockchain for open worlds called Flow to avoid the congestion issues they had in Ethereum, and announced partnerships with the NBA, UFC, Samsung, Warner Music Group, and even Dr. Seuss. The team launched NBA Top Shot in partnership with the NBA. They sell packs of the best highlights in limited numbers, backed by NFTs, and then allow owners to trade the individual highlights from their pack. In the post, I include a, a gif of a Zion Williamson block, which at the time on Friday that I wrote it was asking $39,000. I picked the example at random on Friday, and then yesterday on Sunday, it became the most expensive top shot of all time when the number one of 50 edition traded for $100,000. NFT life comes at you fast. The most expensive sale prior to that happened just last week when a LeBron, junk, LeBron James dunk sold for $71,455. That's real money. The main takeaways from NBA Top Shot transcend the highlight numbers. What's most interesting to me is that it's a prime example of NFT-based platform partnering with a mainstream organization and bringing NFTs to the masses. To do that, they've abstracted away the crypto. They don't mention NFTs or crypto on the homepage, and instead focus on what crypto allows them to do, offer limited edition verified digital assets to collectors. Whale. After some success in the non-crypto ventures and early Bitcoin and Ethereum investments, the man known only as Whale Shark started buying up NFTs in gaming, art, and real estate in 2019. He spent over $1 million, and then in May 2020, decided to put all of his NFTs in a vault and use it to collateralize a new social token called Whale. Unlike many crypto tokens, whose value is backed by math and belief, Whale is the first and most prominent example of a cryptocurrency backed by NFTs, whose price should appreciate based on the value of the NFTs in the vault. WhaleShark continues to buy more NFTs and put more of them in the vault, and NFTs' value is increasing more broadly. As a result, the $1 million has turned into a token with a fully diluted market cap of $58 million, fractionally owned by the community via Whale tokens. You can check out Whale Shark's vault on OpenSea to see the full portfolio. 
and Digitalix. Digitalix is creating a digital fashion operating system by reimagining the supply chain in a digital world with NFT-based scarcity. Digitalix is based on a parent-child structure in which the parent NFT, the final piece, is composed of child NFTs representing all of the materials, patterns, and colors that go into construction of the garment. The company created the DOF sheet, or a periodic table of digital fashion elements, which assigns prices to an ever-expanding range of inputs. The child NFTs are based on another newer standard called ERC-1155, used for semi-fungible tokens that represent a category of things without concern for exactly which one is used. For example, all of the turquoise patterns in the bottom right of the table in the post would be backed by the same ERC-1155 tokens. Some inputs, like raw materials like diamonds and gold, are tied to and fluctuate with real-world prices. Others, like patterns, are algorithmically priced based on their, complex, on their complexity and usage. Taken together, all of the inputs add up to a base price for the piece of digital fashion, helping to solve a challenge in fairly pricing digital goods. NBA Top Shot, Whale, and Digitalix are just three of the many use cases being explored in the NFT space. They represent the beginning stages in making digital items behave more like physical ones. In another, more famous post, the next big thing will start out looking like a toy, Chris Dixon wrote, The reason big new things sneak by incumbents is that the next big thing always starts out being dismissed as a toy. Disruptive technologies are dismissed as toys because when they're first launched, they undershoot user needs. NFTs are in the toy stage today. CryptoKitties obviously started there, and Topshot, Beeple's Art, and other digital collectibles still feel toy-like. Digitalix feels more like a glimpse into NFTs as a business model, and yet more projects are on the way that combine DeFi and NFTs to build new business models and value chains. Importantly, NFTs don't just prove authenticity and ownership. They also give interoperability and portability to rare digital assets, allowing their owners to take their NFT-backed digital items with them across the open web to wherever will host them. That's as good a bridge as any to jump into the metaverse. The size of the metaverse prize. Proponents of the metaverse predict that it will be a multi-trillion dollar digital economy that replaces the internet with shared virtual worlds. If the internet is 2D and siloed, the metaverse is 3D and interoperable, like if video games in the physical world had a baby. In some ways, the seeds of the metaverse are already here. We meet on Zoom, work in TeamFlow, talk in Clubhouse, tweet on Twitter, shop on Amazon, and game in Fortnite. Today, though, all these pieces are disconnected, like walking around a city and changing outfits and ID every time you enter a new building. Web3 and NFTs might hold the key to stitching together the back end of the metaverse. Just as it was for Web3 and NFTs, 2020 was a coming out party for the front end of the metaverse, namely virtual worlds and video games. The natural evolution of virtual worlds mixed with COVID to create a cocktail of new use cases, increased interest, and higher valuations. Of course, there are the concerts. As someone writing about the metaverse, I'm contractually obligated to mention a couple of events. First, in 2019, Marshmallow held the first ever live concert in Fortnite. 10 million people attended. Then, in April 2020, Travis Scott kicked it up a notch and broke Marshmallow's record when 27.7 million unique attendees viewed his five astronomical concerts in Fortnite a total of 45 million times. You knew about those two, but did you know that in July, Tomorrowland, the popular EDM festival, moved online due to COVID and sold over 1 million tickets at 20 euros per piece, bringing in over $20 million in revenue with a much lower cost structure and less liability than the in-person experience? Instead of hosting the festival inside one of the game worlds, Tomorrowland built its own interactive experience using Epic's Unreal Engine. 
Since they built the capabilities in the world anyway, Tomorrowland launched a year-round virtual venue slash world called Noaz. In November, Lil Nas X performed four shows over one weekend in Roblox that were viewed over 33 million times. As a result of the popularity of new metaverse use cases and eye-popping usage and revenue stats, investors woke up to video games' potentials beyond just gaming. In September, Unity, the company behind one of the two main game engines, the Unity Engine, went public. We covered it in the S1 Club, and as a group, we were most excited by the fact that the Unity Engine, along with Epic's Unreal Engine, may be the rails for the metaverse's virtual worlds. Investors were excited too. The company expected to price its shares between $34 and $42, ultimately priced at $52, and ended its first day of trading at $68, double the initial target. Since then, it more than doubled again, and now boasts a $41.7 billion market cap. Roblox, the gaming platform that lets users play, build, and monetize games, also planned IPO in 2021. They delayed their IPO in December, not because they were worried about demand, but because they weren't sure just how high they could price their shares. In early January, Altimeter and Dragoneer led a $520 million round that valued the company at $29.5 billion. Roblox is expected to go public via direct listing in February, and I wouldn't be surprised to see the valuation double if the market stays hot. Epic, probably the leading contender in the metaverse race due to the popularity of Fortnite and the Unreal Engine's position as the most robust engine for 3D experiences, hasn't announced plans to go public. The company raised a $1.8 billion round at $17.3 billion valuation in August, right before investor interest in the space really started heating up. At the time, the company was projected to do $5 billion in revenue with $1 billion in EBITDA for 2020. What would it fetch in the public markets today? $50 billion? $100 billion? While Epic, Unity, and Roblox all sport strong and growing usage and revenue numbers, those valuations imply that investors are starting to put a value on the call option that is the metaverse. The stakes couldn't be higher. Proto-metaverse experiences are increasing in popularity and profitability by the day, and it looks increasingly likely that virtual worlds will indeed capture trillions of dollars in value. The question is, will they be interoperable and open, or closed and siloed? The open versus closed metaverse. Put another way, will the metaverse look more like Web 2.0 or Web 3? The central premise of Ready Player One, the Ernest Cline book-turned movie, is the fight for ownership of the Oasis. The Oasis is the book's version of the metaverse, a virtual reality world built and owned by gregarious simulation systems and its founder, James Halliday. When Halliday dies, he sets off an Easter egg hunt, the winner of which will assume control of the Oasis. The fact that any one person or company can control the Oasis, read the metaverse, means that Ready Player One depicts a closed metaverse, a virtual world controlled by one company. Which brings us back to that Tim Sweeney quote. He said, quote, The metaverse is going to be far more pervasive and powerful than anything else. If one central company gains control of this, they will become more powerful than any government and be a god on earth. A closed metaverse is controlled by one or more large companies and lacks interoperability between platforms. Think of it like a 3D Web 2.0 internet with some new protocols. This is what happens if Facebook wins with the Oculus and other Facebook Reality Labs projects, for example. And if that happens, expect more of what happens today on an unimaginable scale. Sweeney and many others hope it never comes to that. They're advocates for an open metaverse. The open metaverse is one built from the connection and interoperability of a series of different platforms, worlds, sites, stores, experiences, and more. It's a Web3 version of the metaverse in which players could travel from Fortnite to Roblox to Oculus, bringing all of their data, skins, NFTs, and digital currency with them seamlessly. In a July 2020 interview with game makers Joe Kim, Sweeney, who runs one of the few companies with a legitimate claim to being able to build a closed metaverse, said, 
I think the metaverse as an open platform could ultimately be an order of magnitude larger than any one company, including Epic, built entirely on our own as our own proprietary piping. That doesn't mean large companies won't exist or profit from the metaverse. As Matthew Ball wrote in the metaverse, quote, some believe the definition and success of a metaverse requires it to be a heavily decentralized platform built mostly upon community-based standards and protocols like the open web and an open source metaverse OS or platform. This doesn't mean that there won't be a dominant closed platforms in the metaverse. But it's hard to imagine any of the major technology companies being pushed out by the metaverse and or lacking a major role. That said, some FANG companies might support an open metaverse. Microsoft recently admitted it was on the wrong side of history with respect to open source at the turn of the century, and has been much more open to open source under Satya Nadella. They might be a dark horse candidate to provide corporate muscle to the open metaverse movement. And as Ball pointed out, Amazon just wants people to buy things, and Apple just wants to make the devices, app store scuffles aside. There might not be as much resistance to an open metaverse as it might seem. Ball presciently wrote that piece in January 2020, before COVID, increased metaverse chatter, and the surge of interest in DeFi, NFTs, or Web3 more broadly, and was more skeptical of the open metaverse than I am now. He teased a sequel coming soon, and I'll be curious to see whether he's moved closer to the open side. It seems as if that's the way things have shifted over the past year. In its January 2021 post, Under the Metaverse, Foundation, a Web3 company, so caveat emptor, takes the openness of the metaverse for granted, defining it this way. Today, the metaverse is used to describe an emerging shared digital space that can be navigated without corporate interference. As it evolves, the metaverse will reshape how we think of the internet by emphasizing collective ownership, community support, and a decentralized economy, and by giving rise to a wide range of new digital native assets, spaces, and experiences. I come out on the side of the open metaverse, one that looks more like Web3 than Web2.0. The biggest thing for me is portability and interoperability of digital items and personal data. As NFTs have shown, there's a market for digital items whose value isn't mediated by a central platform and that users can showcase in whichever virtual space they choose to inhabit. In fact, a December 2020 study found that 63% of gamers would spend more on virtual goods with real-world value, which is what NFTs enable. As virtual experiences become more immersive and our our identities are more closely tied to our online personas, either because these experiences attract older users or because younger users to whom they're native come of age and drive the economy, the virtual economy will become more robust. The trend towards buying skins, digital real estate, and art will continue, morph, and expand. People will want to take what they own with them wherever they go in the virtual world, and the direct-to-avatar economy will emerge. Crucible in the direct-to-avatar economy. To us olds, and I'm including myself here, it seems crazy that people are willing to spend large sums of money on outfits for their video game avatars. In 2018, over $1 billion of Fortnite's $2.4 billion in revenue came from the sale of skins, or outfits, or emotes, or dance moves. In 2019, League of Legends generated $1.5 billion in revenue from skins. Kids are asking their parents for Robux on Roblox and V-Bucks, which are Fortnite credits, instead of cash or toys. Currently, the value of skins and other virtual items is largely contained within each individual game. In 2019, for example, Louis Vuitton began selling skins in League of Legends, but that skin can't move with its owners to other games yet. Crucible is trying to change that. Its co-founder and CEO, Ryan Gill, told me that he thinks the watershed moment for the metaverse will occur when there's an event that takes place simultaneously across multiple AAA platforms, where players can walk from one to the other as the same avatar wearing the same skin. Imagine buying an NFT skin from Prada, wearing it to a concert in Fortnite, and then popping into a different version of the same concert in Roblox and maintaining the same identity. Already, smaller developers are making this possible. Last week, 
CryptoVoxels, Somnium Space, and Decentraland announced that they're working to let users portal between worlds. For the open metaverse to thrive, that's what Crucible is working to make possible more broadly. It's building the Emergence SDK, a drop-in asset for popular game engines and web frameworks that provides easy, familiar access to Web3's digital trust layer, compatible with both the Unreal and Unity engines. Crucible hopes to be the Web3 interface moment for the open metaverse. Just as Web 1.0 had AOL, the Emergence SDK will make it easy for anyone to interact with the open metaverse, smoothing over its rough and complex edges while keeping the benefits intact. Crucible is developing a D2A market network with three core stakeholders, developers, gamers, and brands. That's really fucking hard. It means needing to get buy-in from all three groups in order to succeed. If it can pull off the challenge, though, the potential is enormous. For developers, when a developer uses the Emergence SDK, they'll be able to plug in Web3 capabilities without worrying about the complexity of building Web3 technology. That allows them to verify identity, reduce friction, and offer more digital items for sale in-game as the industry moves increasingly more towards user-generated models. For brands and creators, instead of partnering with each game or virtual world separately, which is less scalable for both parties, brands and creators can sell skins, NFTs, and other digital assets directly through Crucible's market network. That theoretically allows them to reach a larger audience of people willing to pay more because of the portability of the asset. If I can wear my Prada outfit to a Fortnite concert in a Beeple auction, it's worth more to me. And for players, it starts with identity. Crucible currently works with Sovereign and Evernim's Verity to power a self-sovereign identity. That means that players can log in using their Crucible agent once, verify their real-world identity, and then create any number of personas or anonymous avatars that are tied back to their core identity, each of which can be used across any game or virtual world that uses the Emergence SDK. Players can also tie their skins, NFTs, and other digital asset uh, digital items to their core identity in their Crucible agent, and take it all with them into any virtual space, along with their friends, data, and entire digital lives. If the metaverse looks more similar to Web3 than Web2.0, a player's Crucible agent will hold their digital identities and everything they own in the virtual world, which means that the metaverse begins to look more like the real world. It would be crazy if one store let me wear a t-shirt that I own, but the the one next to it told me that I needed to put on a different one to come in. That's how virtual worlds operate today, and it's a problem that Crucible is working on. If it's successful, it will help to power a direct avatar economy. Just as direct-to-consumer dematerialized supply chain by 40% and enabled new business models to flourish, Gil says, direct-to-avatar will dematerialize the rest of the supply chain, allowing brands and creators to sell direct-to-avatar. He expects direct-to-avatar to reach at least $1 trillion in the next decade. The wisps are there. The top free-to-play games like Fortnite and League of Legends already sell billions of dollars worth of skins, and now it's expanding beyond gaming to what Gil calls designer skins. A designer might sell a -a one-of-a-kind NFT dress on Digitalix and sell it through a nifty gateway auction to someone who stores it in their Crucible agent and can wear it in any virtual world they choose. Or a basketball fan might watch a Sixers game in NBA world, buy a Ben Simmons three-pointer highlight on Top Shot, and take it with him to show off in his own Ben Simmons museum in Minecraft. That creates a whole new value chain, one in which much of the supply chain drops off, demand increases, and value accrues to the creator and the owner. The value chain of the open metaverse. Trying to describe the value chain of the metaverse is kind of like trying to describe the value chain of the world today, without the benefit of knowing exactly how or when the metaverse will manifest. But looking at this one example, direct-to-avatar built on Web3 tech gives a glimpse at how radically the value chain might change in an open metaverse. As a quick refresher, Michael Porter's value chain insight is that competitive advantage cannot be understood by looking at a firm as a whole. It stems from the many discrete activities it performs in designing, producing, marketing, delivering, and supporting its product. 
and Shopify and the hard thing about easy things, I broke down the direct-to-consumer value chain this way, with R&D, manufacturing, retail, logistics, marketing, and support. In Netflix and the Conservation of Attractive Profits, Ben Thompson wrote, Breaking up a formerly integrated system, commoditizing and modularizing it, destroys incumbent value while simultaneously allowing a new entrant to integrate a different part of the value chain and thus capture new value. So knowing that, what happens to the DTC value chain in a world of direct-to-avatar? I think it looks something like this. Cutting out manufacturing, cutting out logistics, and cutting out support, and leaving R&D, retail, and marketing integrated. By dematerializing the supply chain and selling directly to the end user, as represented by the avatar, the D2A value chain removes entire steps, manufacturing, logistics, and support, and integrates R&D, retail, and marketing. R&D becomes production, as renderings and pre-visualizations, potentially using materials and prices from Digitalix's staff sheet, merge with the final product. Retail. In the place of Shopify stores, designers might host their own fashion shows or auctions in virtual worlds built with the Unreal Engine. And marketing. Limited edition drops, the word of which spreads through Discord servers, might replace marketing through traditional channels like Facebook and Google. In this value chain, the profits don't accrue to the aggregators like they do in DTC. There's no 40% of all VC money goes to Google and Facebook here, if it works. The creators will earn the profits, as will the owners of scarce digital assets, the value of which may increase over time, supported by robust decentralized exchanges. Even more compelling, new Web3 metaverse value chains leave room for more individuals to own that sweet, sweet, earn money while you sleep revenue. In Alex Danko's excellent recent piece, The Michael Scott Theory of Social Class, he writes that losers, meaning people who lose the economic game, not being mean, are the people who are set in roles or stations in life where the output of their effort is wholly realized by someone else. As they learn throughout their careers, their skill or engagement might lead to incremental career progress, but no real leverage of any kind. Breaking out of the loser band by making your creations and money work for you, earn while you sleep, is the promise of the creator economy, Web3, and an open metaverse. Already, Roblox paid out an estimated $250 million to mostly young adult developers in 2020. Web3 and an open metaverse make that dream possible for even more people. It's possible to imagine a world in which the whole economy of creators makes patterns and new materials for Digitalix's digital fashion and get paid every time a new skin using their work is sold. Or that by truly owning their data, people can get paid to view ads, to submit their data to medical studies, and more. One of the features of Web3 companies is that there are often mechanisms to turn their users into owners. People may be able to generate real wealth just by using products they're excited about. If done correctly, the metaverse becomes more than an escape from a bleak reality that is depicted in Ready Player One, but a new way to earn a middle-class income while pursuing your passions with ever-growing and more profitable niches of your people around the globe. This is not the reality today. Web3 is very early, and many don't believe it will deliver on its promise. The interfaces of decentralized apps are still hard to decipher for most people, myself included. As I was writing this, as if by magic, venture capitalist Jill Carlson tweeted, Crypto UX is entirely and utterly broken. If you're actually using it, not via a third party, it's borderline unusable, even for those of us who have been doing it for the better part of a decade. The list goes on. The metaverse is only here in wisps. There's a big difference between people making $3.5 million and the millions of digital artists who barely make anything. And the metaverse, if it does come to fruition, still may be controlled by Zuck. The reasons the future described here may never become a reality are endless, but it is worthwhile to explore because it's a future we should all want to live in. That said, I hope you leave this piece with an understanding of what might be possible, an appreciation for the fact that this movement is every bit as capitalist as it is idealistic, and a desire to keep learning and hopefully start creating.
So that's all for today. Thanks so much for coming down this rabbit hole with me, and I will talk to you on Thursday. Have a good week. Thank you.